What do you call that noise? Many thanks to Sarah Palmer of Fascine for kicking off the show with her rendition of I'm the King of the Castle. I'll be explaining why in due course. I'm Mark Fisher, and this is What Do You Call That Noise? the XTC podcast. Today we're going transatlantic with a discussion about Britishness, Englishness, Wiltshireness, Swindonness, and quite possibly Penhillness, as we consider the local references in XTC songs that don't always travel. This is the first of at least two episodes on this theme. We'll be back with more in a couple of episodes' time. First, to whet our appetite, here's Donna Reese with our monthly recommendation of the perfect drink to go with the perfect song. What do you call that noise? Hello, my name's Donna Reese, and as I'm in deepest Kent, surrounded by the heady aroma of hop fields, I thought I'd go for a strong, dark Wiltshire ale to accompany the fantastic Duke's track, You're a Good Man, Albert Brown, and maybe with a packet of pork scratchings on the side. Thank you, Donna. I'm thirsty already. Um, A quick thank you also to the fabulous supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. They include Pink Things, Humble Humble Daisies and Knights in Shining Karma. And the Knights in Shining Karma will get a name check at the end of this episode. If you'd like to keep the podcast free of ads and packed with XDC goodness, please head to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Now, with me today are three veteran XTC podcasters and one very welcome newcomer. First, with Great Britain written on their nameplate, are Belinda Blanchard. Hello, Belinda. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, And Dr. Peter Mills. I'm emphasising the doctor because of the erudite nature of this episode. How are you (laughs) doing, Peter? Good evening, Mark. Uh, Great pleasure to be here. Very good. I'm humbled to be with you. And uh, then to the US of A. Hey, you. Yes, you in particular. <laughs> flying across the Atlantic to sunny California, we have Amy Parkinson. Welcome back, Amy. I'm so happy to be here. Lovely company. Thank you. And then a big welcome all the way from Ohio to Sandy LeFew. How's it going, Sandy? Just fine, thanks. I'm very happy to be here, too. Lovely. Um, so we're going to be talking about the Britishness of XTC, and maybe I mean the Englishness, and we can maybe talk about this distinction between Englishness and Britishness, although that might take us off on another tangent, I suppose. But maybe I could uh, start with you, Sandy, from, from your perspective in North America. Is there something especially appealing about the foreignness of XTC? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it all started probably with the first British invasion. And um, we got plenty of Anglophiles here in this country to enjoy their music. But there's something about XTC that does sound particularly English. And I think all the time about, um, I've seen This Is Pop, the the documentary, so many times. (laughs) Andy talking about them trying to get uh, produced by an American producer, which ended up being Todd Rundgren. And he'll say, I think... I thought we sounded pretty British. And I was like, yeah, you did. But the way he said it just kind of, yeah, put it all into perspective. Do, do you feel the same, Amy? I do. I absolutely do. And just like Sandy said, it's, uh, for me, Brits are just exotic anyway. Yeah. I, <laughs> there's just this, uh, 
I know you probably might laugh, but to me, and I think in general, our take on uh, Brits is that there's just this layer of sophistication in the accent and the, uh, you seem to speak in a very proper way. (laughs) And it's, uh, it is exotic. Yeah. Yeah. I think we speak American, whereas these folks probably truly speak English. That's how I look at it. I think you're right. Yeah. What's the phrase? Divided by a common language. Very true. Because, I mean, and, and so in that sense, you know, I'm just trying to think of contemporaries that you might have been listening to uh, at the same time as XTC. So there would be someone like REM or Talking Heads and so on. That Do, do, do they... Do you put those sort of bands in the same category as XTC or does it feel like XTC or this other thing that's come from some other exotic place? I grew up in the South, in Georgia, in the U.S., and I grew up in the backyard of Athens, Georgia, and REM when they were coming up. So for me, they were homeboys, and I didn't think of them as being terribly exotic at all. (laughs) I thought they were crazy talented. I still do. They're one of my favorite bands, but... um, no, XTC was just this very exotic import, for sure. Yeah. I was one of these, um, you know, Midwestern American teenagers that just didn't like anything. That I could not listen to one more Leonard Skinner song without <laughs> I was going to start taking hostages at, like, so MTV. I, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I, but so Britpop really spoke to me. I had no idea that in the late 70s that I kind of fell into that art school kind of group because we didn't have that stuff back then. I just knew that I connected with things like that more so than, you know, like I would compare it to university radio as compared to maybe our top 40 radio. It just didn't do it for me. So I started Mm -hmm. looking elsewhere. And then when MTV came along, you know, that when we could see, and one of my other favorite groups was um, Split Ends. And I, I never would have been exposed to split ends if it hadn't been for MTV. Right. Or XTC, for that matter. And there is something special, isn't there, when you get to like an artist or a, of, of any discipline, you know, not just music, where, where the, the, their biography and their place that they come from seem to be relevant. And I think particularly with XTC, it seems to be especially relevant because of, of where they're from. And it does, is, is that from, from the United Kingdom side of the equation, Peter, is, is the Englishness of, of XTC a, a thing that you're aware of? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's so fascinating to, to, to listen to the sort of the, the American view, um, because to me anyway, um, and I, I think... I'm, I'm talking about sort of the, the kind of perhaps earlier records than we've been thinking about thus far. To begin with, XTC sounded like it, the, the music, I should say, sounded like it, it just kind of landed, you know, in a, in a sort of a quivering orange saucer <laughs> from, an, from another planet. You know, I'd, I'd, I mean, I was a teenager, but I had never heard anything like it. So when I first heard white music and to a lesser extent go to, I suppose, you know, we were kind of more familiar with it. But that early stuff didn't sound like it came from anywhere actually. So the English thing, which is very definitely a thing, capital A, capital T, to me, sort of settled in a bit later. 
maybe even after you know i suppose what we'd call the retirement the retirement from from live performance anyway um sort of analogous to that sort of calming down a little bit and the um the 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 more dominant acoustic textures rather than like on the first two records that sort of science fiction sort of brilliantly berserk style that you hear often driven by Barry Andrews keyboards actually in some senses uh, and then you know the early guitar bass and drum the, the uh, drums and wires and um, uh, Black Sea of course you know that big sort of thunderous epic sound um, the the Englishness to me anyway comes in with what what I call uh, the like the green albums like English Settlement obviously it's a clue in the mm. title but also Mama and then I suppose Big Express is a is a rusty album isn't it rather than the green album but they all seem like very very English records to me um, and I was very interested also to hear Todd Rundgren's came uh, name uh, come up because of course he was a real ang probably still is a real Anglophile musically wasn't he. Like the Naz, this first group, they were just they just wanted to sound like an English beat group, and all the bands that he produced um, in the seventies, like Badfinger or the Raspberries, you know they 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 were the same. Well, obviously Badfinger were British and signed to Apple, um, but you know he was that that was what he liked. That's what he interested in. That's what he tried to sort of recreate. Um, Actually, sometimes, didn't he? he? made a whole album. Was it called Faithful? Where he was trying to recreate, you know, kind of the, those uh, those tracks, Beatles tracks and stuff. Um, so that's a very long-winded response, Mark. I'm sorry. No, it's fascinating. Um, it's so I'm, I'm thinking, like, the Englishness sort of comes in a bit later because to start with, the emphasis seemed to be on making it sound like nothing you'd ever heard before. And you couldn't place it, you know, you couldn't say... Uh, oh, this is American music, or this is this is British music, or European music, or whatever. So I'm just thinking, actually, not even more recently than that. I think it was that watching the This Is Pop documentary was made a big impression on me in this of in in this area of of kind of realizing how just how rooted the band are. And I, in my introduction, I talked about the Penn Hillness, but you know, the the, the mm. it's 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 very very particular. Uh, it's it, it's not a generic Britishness. It's not even a not even a generic Englishness. It's West Country. It's it's Swindon. It's a very particular yeah. railway town, uh, an hour outside London, not far from Wales, down in the in in the West Country, and a very ex a rural stroke urban experience, which gives us on the one hand yeah. love on a farm boy's wages, and on the other train running low on soul coal. It's it's mm -hmm. it's that particular. Uh, yeah, places and, and it's almost like it couldn't have come from that music couldn't have come from any other location mm. is it something that uh interests you belinda or, or something that you're aware of that 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 whole sense of place i do agree that a lot of what they sing for start off is sung in an english accent um and although you can't always hear the swindon swang, twang of it you do you do get some kind of a, it, it's, if you say it's English in, in every way, the whole thing about Swindon and the in, interior uh, junction of, of being a big uh, a train intersection, a similar, almost a twin town sort of thing in America would, I believe, be Fargo, uh, which has also got a major junction and 
indeed, I, I went I went to it just because of the film, but also um, because, you know, it's a, a major railways junction. And I was wondering if um, now, not then, but I was wondering if there was any similar sort of Fargo-based band that might um, sound like nowhere else except Fargo, if you know what I mean. Anyway, um, yes, they're English. <laughs> <laughs> Correct answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Because <laughs> um, it's making me think that 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 you know you over there in America invented rock and roll in the nineteen fifties, uh, and then we, we over here inherited it. And you know, there's the famous stories about the the Beatles getting records off the off the docks. You know, when these the the boats were coming in and hearing this sort of raw rock and roll, and and then emulating it and 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 developing it themselves. And then basically, we sold sold rock and roll back to you with that first British invasion in the 1960s. I thought it was God gave rock and roll to you. God gave, well, there is God, yeah. yes. Well, we could, we'll have to do another episode on God at some point. But, uh, yeah, so that, that sort of two-way traffic has always been there and, and developments happen. And, you know, if you listen to, if you listen to what is identified as British punk, well, actually, Iggy Pop and the Stooges was, was doing, <laughs> were doing it two or three years yeah. before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Sex Pistols came along. So, so there is a big interplay across the Atlantic and and I, I don't know so, so I suppose it, it, do you hear the Englishness say of the Kinks or the Beatles do you, do you hear their accents or because one of the big things that British bands traditionally have done and still do is is to sing in what we regard as an American accent you might not regard this as an American accent but that sort of mid-Atlantic twang is quite common isn't it do, do you do mm-hmm. you do you hear the the Britishness normally in those sort of records the Kinks for sure yeah um, very, very British. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say the same thing, absolutely, for XTC. Um, I've always been surprised, uh, not just with uh, singers, but with actors. Sometimes you find out years later, oh my gosh, they're Australian. Oh my yeah. gosh, they're from they're from the. There is this kind of thing when you, especially when you sing, no matter what your accent is, we all seem to have that kind of neutral. Mm-hmm. And I, I sometimes wonder if bands like the Kinks don't push that, you know, accent in the music because they do sound very British, which is a lovely, lovely thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we love it. Yes. And sometimes it's a very overtly political thing. So, for example, the, the Proclaimers coming from Scotland because oh, they right. have uh, because of their politics and their and because they are from Scotland uh, they, sure. they they it's very the, the accent is very present in in their, in oh, yeah. their for political reasons yeah. and so, sandy you, you were talking to me earlier about the, the, your attraction to to the accent it's something that, not yeah. just the, not just the content of what SDC are singing about the the roads that near, that that they live nearby but the actual sound of their voices is something you're very aware of I just noticed it recently on Towers of London, walking pretty ladies around, you know. How- <laughs> <laughs> and in the um, we love in the Church of Women, we love to quote in the we love to quote Colin because it's a very different accent. The West Country accent is I had never heard it in particular until the documentary came out. And Colin was talking about Andy as a kid at school. And he said he always had a cry drive him. And, I, <laughs> and we're like, okay. And then at one point, Andy says, cancel estate. 
And we had to, I didn't know what he was saying. We had to look it up. It's council and state. I had no idea. And um, I have noticed in interviews and things, the more relaxed he gets or the laid back he gets, that's or maybe he has a drink. I don't know. Um, you really hear that West Country come out. And in uh, Mayor of Simpleton, he'll say, never been near university. And um, I, don't, I didn't catch that at first. I just thought they all sounded English. But so on St. Patrick's Day, I was watching my favorite Irish movie, The Commitments. And there's that famous scene where they're practicing Mustang Sally. And the first time the backup singers come in, Robert Arkins jumps up and says, no, no, girls, don't use your accents. It's not Roy, Sally, Roy. It's ride, Sally, ride. <laughs> and I just, I just love that. So it's all good by me. I mean, everything sounds fun. But here recently, I noticed it in a zombie song. <gasps> and um, that was the first time. And I think they sound pretty British, too. Oh, I love the zombies. I do, too. I do, too. So there's a fantastic... I'm sorry, Mark, to be going off like this. You've got... No, this is fine. Come where uh, if you want. No, you've got the wrong American girl on this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Amy. He, Amy knows what I'm talking about. Um, there's a wonderful zombies song that didn't get a lot of airplay and it's called This Will Be Our Year. And um, I heard it on a, a newscast or something here in January. And it's just a beautiful song with Rod Argent playing piano. And I was familiar with so much of the other stuff. In fact, last week, Suzanne and I from Church of Women were texting each other back and forth because there was an old British movie called on called Finding uh, Funny Lake is Missing. And the zombies were actually in it. And um, I said, "You Funny Lake is Missing is on. And she texted me back and we both DVR'd it. And that was great. But the zombies actually appeared and that was an auto Priminger film. And, now and I, I'm just... I'm just thinking about uh, one reason it's not always obvious, particularly in early XTC stuff, where you know, and Andy's doing most of the singing, is that the deliberately distorted vo vocal mannerisms that he took on right. do discuss. Yeah, it just makes it doesn't sound like anybody. Just apart from Andy right. Partridge, it's it's uh, a sound unto itself. So you don't necessarily hear that. Uh, That's what they, they sounded like punk in the beginning to me. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think, Peter, would you say, do you think when you're listening to any music, do you think place is important? Are you always thinking about where a band has, has come from when, when, when you're listening to them? Um, well, yes, if, if I know something about them. I mean, it's the, um, in, in terms of what we were talking about earlier on, uh, I was fascinated to hear, Amy, that you, you grew up in, or you would live, did you say you grew up in Athens, Georgia, or? Very near, yeah, middle Georgia. Very, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So to me, REM are oh, the inextricably linked with 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 Georgia in the south. Right. Just the sound of it. The, the, to, just to pick up on what we we're talking about earlier on. To to me, it's always something to do with the vowels. That's where the information is about where people are from and sort of accents and dialects. So if you listen to Michael Stipe singing, then you mm -hmm. know exactly, you know. Did you never call? I waited for your call. <laughs> These rivers of, yes, yes. Yeah, fantastic. So, I mean, it, to me, that evokes the place, that evokes the, all, you know, kind of the atmosphere of it. 
And um, what you say, Mark, is right. Early, the st- he called it his seal bark, didn't he? Andy Partridge called his early vocal style his, his seal bark, which kind of connects up with what I was saying about it not really sounding like it came from anywhere. But, um, you know, as the music relaxed, the same as as maybe Andy does, you know, when he's, when he's in, you know, sort of... Um, familiar company right. or he's had a drink or right. he's really getting into his subject then though that kind of burr let's call it a burr comes through and it'll it'll be to do with the vowel sounds and that's unusual actually in in in, in pop music british pop music because usually you'd get those kind of tones they belong to folk music actually okay. you'll hear a lot of that in folk music that sort of you know intonation um but not in rock and pop, generally speaking. Um, and I think it's interesting how that's kind of come into... The, well, that came into the music. It's a long time ago now, isn't it? That came into the music um, when they granted themselves a little bit more space to do stuff where everything wasn't so backed up in the music and just moving from one thing to the next rapidly. So I think that sort of creative expansion that they allowed themselves, um, you can hear it in the way he sings too um and i think i think is it is it is red brick dream the only song where he actually mentions swindon i mean he kind of infers and we can recognize the town in other songs but is that the only one where he actually mentions swindon? I, I saw somebody on facebook asking uh-huh. asking that question the other day and i'm i couldn't think of anything i think it yeah. is yeah 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 yeah. Another example of a um, an earlier rock band who sang very much in in an English accent, even or their own accent, even in only part of it, is uh, the Small Faces. Uh, oh yeah, and and um, Lazy Sunday Afternoon. Oh my God, I love that so much. And they really, I mean, when they sort of went in in the sort of high register, they they went off in a brilliant American accent. But well, they sang as as they do. But um, most of it, wouldn't it be nice? That sort of glottal stop <laughs> to get on with me neighbours. That's a bit like Ian Jury, isn't it? It's like almost like oh, a yeah. yeah. He came thing. a lot later. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and David Bowie and before him Anthony Newley. You know yeah. that that that. Oh, very, Anthony yeah. Newley. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking there's another thing that is, this is also true of America, but because America is a bigger place, it's maybe harder to, to define, but the, the music in Britain is very much based around scenes. So in fact, I was just watching a, a piece of online theater from Sheffield called the band played on, which uses songs from Sheffield interspersed all the way through a series of monologues. So they've got Jarvis, a Jarvis Cocker song in there and the Arctic monkeys. And you realize that, you know, those and other bands they don't include are part of that Sheffield scene and the sense of an identity. If you come from Sheffield, these are the bands that have somehow defined your, sense of place and then you could do that with Manchester, Joy Division, The Smiths. I don't uh, feel that about London though. I London, don't feel London's that about... harder because London's such a big place, isn't it? Yeah. I know, mm. you know, but all the all the sort of London bands who are very proudly identifiably London, I don't necessarily feel oh, they talk for me. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and, you know, and, it's and what now I'm about thinking about basically. it. Now I'm thinking about it. You can't do it. With, you can't really do it with Swindon at all. It's maybe just too small a place. But the, to my knowledge, there isn't. Uh, if there is a Swindon scene, it hasn't gone public. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I've heard it said that um, I can definitely tell a Liverpool accent, probably just for being so obsessed with the Beatles. But I've been told that that's very particular to their area. And it has oh, something you- to do. Yeah. And, and also their era, I, I come from from the Wirral, which is, you know, over the water from where the Beatles were. And they're, they're, they have a 1960s Liverpool accent. <laughs> you know, people in Liverpool don't speak like that, like the Beatles anymore. And uh, because oh, really? t- time, time, you know, with time, the, the accent shifts. I mean, they, they sound more like the Beatles than somebody from the south of England. But, but the accent has changed since, since those days. What do you call that noise? Should we do some some um, education? <laughs> um, Belinda, Peter, and I have been doing our homework, and we've been looking into references in XDC songs that we think don't always travel. We might be wrong in that, but it will be interesting to hear what Amy and, and Sandra have to say about that. And I have been, I'm going to kick this off. I've been looking into nursery rhymes. Uh, and actually, but I'll start actually with, before I start talking about nursery rhymes, I want to ask a, a sort of counter question for Amy and Sandy. Uh, uh, am I right in thinking you do have nursery rhymes in the in the US, but maybe just a different set of them? Or are they less part of the culture than than I think they are in Britain? Uh, I think we do, but I was told they were all based um, in, in British lore. I think. Yes, Eric, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Sandy. Yeah. Uh, I... Yeah. I I'm hard pressed to think of anything that's specifically American in terms of nursery rhymes. Yeah, I mean, we sang "London Bridge is Falling Down," yeah, and mm-hmm. "Ring Around the Rosy," and um, somebody yeah. had to break this down for me years ago. But "Rockabye Baby" has something to do with an English air. Somebody thought a baby was placed in a tree or something. I. Yeah, well, I've been looking into into all of these, and it's and it depends on where you end up on the internet. But everybody's got a different theory about what these things mean because they do date back to to antiquity. But you know, the earliest they can talk about the earliest time a, a nursery rhyme has been published, but they can't say when they how long it had been uh, knocking around for. And right. certainly, certainly, we you know when when America was being colonized. The, the colonizers would have taken the the, the nursery rhymes with them so because uh, it was it, it's from that that era um the 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 definition that brewer's dictionary of phrase and fable gives for nursery rhymes is that they contain survivals of folklore ancient superstitions festival games and local customs and history and so on and the reason i'm talking about nursery rhymes is that they crop up all over xdc material in a way that i take for granted but i sometimes wonder whether others might not and i in particular i'm pretty sure that when anybody hears anybody in the uk sees the titles oranges and lemons they immediately think of this oranges and lemons say the bells of saint clemens you only five farthings say the bells of saint martin when will you pay me said the bells of old bailey when i grow rich say the bells of shortage and when will that be said the bells of shepney oh i do not know says the great bellipo
that was the fabulous Sarah Palmer singing a nursery rhyme that every child in the UK knows, but apparently not further afield. People, people would also hear the reference to oranges and lemons in Bali for a rainy day. So when you hear orange, orange and lemon raincoats roll and tumble, you're programmed to hear oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens. That's the thing that sort of goes into your head. And then Andy takes yeah. it off to raincoats and roll and tumble, I think. Anyway, uh, but Belinda and, and Peter might want to chip in and disagree. Um, and St. Clemens is one of the London churches named in the song. It was designed or the current building was designed by Christopher Wren. And it stands, the church stands close to the wharves where citrus fr fruits would be unloaded. So that's why it's oranges and, and lemons yeah. say the bells of St. Clemens. It was first printed in 1744, and the phrase oranges and lemons was the name of a square dance before that, like a century before that uh, in 1657. It was recorded as that, probably existed before that. So, that the, so you know, the history is very, very uh, vague. And actually, one thing I can't, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten of this, this from my own childhood, but there's a children's game where two children hold their hands up up in the air i'm doing it on, on this is useless for a podcast two two children and <laughs> form, form an archway uh, for, uh, uh and and then all the other children run through the archway while they're singing oranges and lemons and when it gets to the line chop off your head the arch comes down and the child beneath the arch gets their head chopped off uh, and, children to life yeah <laughs> lovely <laughs> Um, oh, and this is one of the examples I was thinking of before. Uh, in I, I am uh, not familiar enough with the, with the complete works of the Clash to, to know this, but Clash City Rockers has has a, has a line, has a verse that goes, "You owe me a move, say the bells of Saint Groove. Come on and show me, say the bells of Old Bowie. When I am fitter, say the bells of Gary Glitter. No one but you." And I say the bells of Prince Far Eye. So the Clash were tuned into Oranges and Lemons way before uh, way before uh, us. I've got more nursery rhymes to talk about, but Belinda and Peter, am I talking absolute bollocks? I haven't got a clue, mate. <laughs> but you're you're from the Bow Bells yourself, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I was not born. You can only be call yourself a Cockney if you were born within the sound of Bow Bells. I'm sure most people know that. The Americans may not. Now you do. Um, the uh, as the crow flies, I live probably about seven miles away from that particular church. I was born in West London, so I am not a Cockney. Cockney, I doubt I could even do the accent. Talking of accents, and you may want to edit this, um, in London there is now recognised, well, it's been recognised for maybe about 10 years, an accent for the first time ever, um, children are not talking in the accents of their parents. And hip hop, a lot of other music has got a lot to do with it. And so, and probably social media. And this accent is called MLE, which is also known as Middle uh, Mixed London English. So uh, all the kids, obviously, you know, they want to they wanna, uh, fit in. No kids want to stand out. So they all talk like that. And uh, they talk about, uh, I can't really do it very convincingly. It has to come from a 15-year-old. Um, but, you know, they, they talk like that and it's all very short and sweet and um, they 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 cut they cut off the ends of... of 
it's really hard. I I don't want to give. I think um, there's a there's a, a an a, an app called iPlayer, and the advert for it is iPlayer. <laughs> it's iPlayer. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so Mix London English is is an accent in its in its own right, and whether you're um, a, a white middle class or a West Indian of any class or um, Asian, all those kids will speak closer to middle London, middle mixed London English. It's a fascinating subject. Wow. I, I love the story of English. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, and cut. <laughs> <laughs> it's reminding me that in um, that you often hear children, because there are so many American children's television programs that our children watch, that I've often heard, and I've heard other people say this, that that they you hear the children, yeah. particularly when they go into a narrative voice, they're, they're playing yeah. a game. They associate they associate narrative with American accents, and so you hear young five year olds, whatever, talking with American accents when they're playing role playing games. We have a lot to uh, to the BBC and ITV, the main news channels in Britain, cut their children's television budgets drastically. Hence, we're getting the American children's programs. Absolutely no offence to the Americans in this. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I feel terrible. <laughs> oh, that's a shame to have anything, you know, budget cuts like that. So, well, I was just going to add, and I don't know if this is germane to what we're really talking about, but uh, my son grew up with Harry Potter, and I was just as much in love with Harry Potter as my son. So, we started watching the movies when he was around eight. And my son also had a little round pair of glasses when he was three. He's worn them his whole life. And so I think he had sort of an affinity for Harry because Harry wore glasses like him. Uh But Cole, my son, could do a fabulous British accent from a very young age. And it just charmed the hell out of me. I just thought it was the sweetest thing ever. I wish I had recorded it more. But uh, to this day, sometimes I'll ask him to do Harry Potter and he'll do it and he'll do it great. So <laughs> that's awesome. I, we were the same way. And my son had a particular way also of saying, Happy Christmas. <laughs> Happy Christmas, Harry. And I, I think he knew. I'm like, No, it's Merry Christmas. I think he knew it got to me. But anyway, yeah, that's, we love Harry Potter too. That's, and it's so full of, it's such a narrative of everything. I think it's full of class distinctions. Mm-hmm. I know we're not talking about that today, but you know, you've got the muggles and you've got the bloods and you've got mudbloods and the houses and anyway. Yeah. Yes, that school, that school is a very um, upper class British school as well. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. That's yet another episode. I think. Yeah. I <laughs> uh, right. Think I'm, so. I'm, yeah. I'm going to move on unless uh, unless Peter's got anything more to say about oranges and lemons. Have you? Well, uh, just, just that, you know, um, being born in the 50s, um, Andy was, was you know, children of that age, 50s and 60s, possibly even into the 70s, these would probably be the first rhyming and harmonious things that you heard. Like your parents, my parents would sing them to me, that's how I knew them. Or you'd have them in the books, so they'd be like an aid to reading. So they're really sort of hardwired in. 
Um, you know, it's not not necessarily a matter of taste. These were the things that you heard. These were the, the, the melodies that you would learn to sing and you would learn to connect words and tunes through things like oranges and lemons. And like you say, Mark, mm-hmm. the, with, you know, with the, the playground games, that takes them out of the home and they're into the social context, the way you interact with your peers. Um, so they're very sort of important. And, of course, they're shared. I do a little sort of game with my students right at the start of the first, uh, of the first session in the first year. Um, and I, I get them to, um, you know, they all sit there and they've never met before, and I just start off one of these things and goes around the room, and they do a line each. I say, there we are, look, see, we, all, <laughs> we might not know each other, but we've all got the same information, so now we can proceed and, you know, see what else we can find out together. Um, so I think that kind of shared information, uh, that's why it's in Andy's creative imagination, I would say, because it's in everybody's, and because it's in yeah. everybody's, um, you know, it, we can pick up on it. In the way that you know, it's it's uh, it can be opaque if you don't know, but if you do know and you've heard them since you were, you know, six weeks old, then you know they have a kind of resonance above and beyond um, what's written on the page. Well, yes, I wasn't going to say this, but I've, I've suddenly had a memory. There's a there's a little melody in towards the end of Living Through Another Cuba where he goes Cuba, 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 ba ba da and that's a, mm. that's a children's playground yeah, chant. Na, 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 it's like na, a taunt, na. isn't it? Um, I don't yeah. know if it's got any words, but it's that that's suddenly had that flashback from 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 childhood. Yeah. And I was just talking yeah, about playground go. games. We began the episode with with Sarah Palmer singing I'm the King of the Castle. And that's alluded to in Down in the Cockpit where it but turned round where it's Queen wants the castle back from the rascal, in which Andy swaps the genders to make a pro-women point. And, of course, in Playground, the song Playground, he makes that yeah. allusion, doesn't he, that the playground is like the big square world. You know, it's, That's it's right. just a yeah. microcosm yeah, of the, the yeah. big world outside. Um, towards the end of Leisure, he sings Lazy Bones. Has anybody right. ever noticed that? It, yeah, that's a yeah. song I remember. Yeah, but yeah. the way he works it in and the subject of lazy bones, you, how are you ever going to get a day's work done? Yeah. But he also anglicizes it and a very specific yeah. kind of Englishness, leafing through the sun, I think is the line, which is, you know, like the, the epitome of everything that's bad about sort of uh, English newspapers and attitudes and stuff, a newspaper called The Sun, um, uh, which is alarmingly popular uh, in this country. <laughs> but that, it's a reference to that, you know, he's just sitting there reading this kind of rubbish. Right. And then he's something about looking for jobs that don't exist yeah yeah yes which was very true of the era when he was writing that because there was a high rate of unemployment right so 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 i'm the king of the castle is a children's game and the idea of it is that one of the children plays the king and goes to a high place so up on a wall or i guess in a tree or wherever the children are playing and he has to he or she has to defend their position on top of a wall so, uh, while the other children are trying to pull them down. So they're, they're shouting, I'm the king of the castle, and uh, while the dirty rascals are trying to pull them down. And, and apparently that goes, there are, there are claims anyway, that that goes way back to even the 
when there were people were speaking Latin, you know, to 20 BC, there's the sort of versions of, uh, uh, of, of that. And certainly by the 16th century France and 17th century Scotland, it's, it's uh, popping up. And interestingly, when it did get exported to the US, the, it is often known as the King of the Mountain. I don't know whether that rings any yeah. bells with you. There, there is a Kate Bush mm -hmm. song called King of the Mountain. I don't know whether that's coincidental or not. So that's down in that's down in the cockpit, and and I'm the king of the castle. Uh, we could go on to Jack and Jill, um, and Jack and Jill is referred to in We're All Light because you've got the line, "Don't you know Jack and Jillian years ago, some dinosaur dropped the pail when it saw Brilliant. our reflection?" And <laughs> yeah. uh, here, actually, here's my daughter singing Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. That was Lottie Fisher singing Jack and Jill. And there are more possible reference points than, than I realised um, uh, in that because um, Jack and Jill were generic names for a boy and a girl or a lad and a lass that are thought to predate the nursery rhyme. And you see, like the name Jack, it turns up in Jack in the Box, and in the US, it's Jack a Lantern. Uh, every, there's a phrase "Every man Jack of them" means every everyone. Uh, I'm all right, Jack, Jack of all trades. So the name is just a generic name for for a man. I can't think of any in the same way with Jill, but presumably there were once. Uh, and there is an old saying that says, "A good Jack makes a good Jill," meaning a good husband makes a good wife. Not that I've ever heard that, but in 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 a midsummer in a in a midsummer night's dream, Shakespeare has Jack shall have Jill, naught shall go ill, the man shall have his mare again, and all shall be well. Um, and then the earliest publication of Jack. Are we glad those days are over? The, the <laughs> earliest Hello. The earliest publication of Jack and Jill is around 1765, and the rhyme could be from the previous century. So there are lots of variations on the words of both sides of the Atlantic, and there are various theories of the origins, including a Norse legend in which a brother and sister are stolen by the moon while they're getting water from a well. And there's another one that suggests that it's uh, from the, uh, the 1600s and it's the reign of Charles, King Charles I when a half pint, this is a really good theory, I don't know whether, no idea whether it's true, a half pint was known as a jack and indicated by the crown symbol. So we've got broke his crown um, at, the, at the half pint line of a, of, a, of a glass of beer. And a quarter pint was known as a, a, a gill or a gill sometimes. Um, and Charles attempted to reduce the volume of a jack without reducing the tax, which meant he was going to get more, more, more uh, tax per, per unit of alcohol, uh, which meant breaking the crown. And then the gill came tumbling after. One theory might be true. And uh, then there's another th another theory that Jack and Jill is is from Jack and Jill Hill in the village in the village of Kilmersdon in Somerset, where in 1697 a man apparently died in a rockfall and his lover died in childbirth. So all of those things could be could be possible. But so all of that is wrapped into one little pun in "We're All Light." <laughs> um, and then uh, is the American version. Is the American version John and Jane, as in Doe? No, it's Jack and yeah. Jill, as I know it. I was happy. I okay. know this one. I know one. You do know that one. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. And and <laughs> uh, and now to Barbar Black Sheep. Barbar Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. 
Thanks again, Lottie, for that one. Uh, Barbar Black Sheep makes its appearance in Brainiac's Daughter, which gives us, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, sir, which in keeping with the 60s fascination with childhood tales such as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and talking of Lewis Carroll, the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland makes an appearance in two songs, Burning with Optimism's Flames and My Bird Performs. And the idea of a grinning Cheshire cat goes back to the 18th century, so before Lewis Carroll, uh, and there's various speculations about why. Barbar Black Sheep was first printed around 1744, and the origins are unknown, but it could have something to do with a wool tax in the 13th century. And this is, yeah. this. Is, I'm going to play yeah. uh, Lottie singing the earliest version. Barbar Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, old mate, I've three bags full. Two for my master, one for my dame. And none for the little boy that cries in the lane. None for the little boy that cries in the lane. It's much sadder, that one, isn't it? <laughs> um, and here, here's a fact for, 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 for fans of, of misanthropic uh, Swedish theatre. August Strindberg, the playwright, Swedish playwright, translated Barbar Black Sheep into Swedish in 1872. You learn a lot from the XTC podcast. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. I want to hear it. Yeah, I want to hear it. If any of our Swedish listeners would like to uh, phone in with a with a version of Bar Bar Black Sheep sleeping sheep yes, in Swedish, do. we'd be very pleased to hear you. <laughs> I think Abba recorded it, Mark. B side of Honey, Honey. Of course they did. <laughs> um, now. This is slightly cheating because we're going to Germany now, but Amy had a particular request to hear about uh, Peter, which is probably not how it's pronounced in Germany, but Peter, as it looks like to me, uh, it makes an appearance in uh, an illusion, I suppose, in Scissorman. Uh, it's, I would say it's, uh, Belinda and Peter might want to join in with this, but I would say that uh, yeah. Peter is not particularly well known in, in the UK as much as others. It was at a certain point, I think, <laughs> but it comes from an 1845 German children's book by Heinrich Hoffmann, which is a series of five illustrated moral fables about children behaving badly and getting their comeuppance. Since its first English translation in 1848, it's been known in, in English as shock-headed Peter, although Mark Twain translated it as slovenly Peter. And there was a popular theatre production under that name in 1998 starring the Tiger Lilies. Um, and one of the stories is about a reg, red-legged tailor or scissor man who waits in the wardrobe for a boy called Conrad, who's been told off for sucking his thumb. So it's a very moral story. Don't suck your thumb because otherwise the tailor will jump out and cut off your thumbs with his giant scissors. And you can make a clear line of inspiration there going down to Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands, who looks uh, very Scissorman-ish. Um, yeah, I've I'm, never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. And so presumably no, Andy had read that book as, as a child. These kids can't get a break in these... These kids just can't get a break, can they? They can't. It's very tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this is one that I came across I, that I didn't know is complete news to me. And you can actually, um, Amy and Sandy might want to contribute to this because it was new to me. Um, I came across one that's called Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater, which has its origins in the 18th century in the UK, but we don't have pumpkins over here, so the words were different at that point. Yeah, we do. And it was you don't have pumpkins. Yes, we do. Well, we do now, but we didn't. We didn't really then. Oh. Um, huh. And it and and it was developed in the, in the UK where pumpkins grow. And the line goes: Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater had a wife and couldn't keep her. He put her in a pumpkin shell, and there he kept her very well. 
which apparently the suggestion is uh, the wife in this equation uh, was a prostitute, perhaps kept by uh, Peter, her husband, because therefore he couldn't keep her, and uh, and he killed her, um, which happens to all errant wives, um, and uh, and then and then left and then left her in a pumpkin shell. <laughs> <laughs> There's so um, much that wouldn't get published now. Oh dear. I know. So much you wouldn't get away I'm with. Picking up on a theme here. Right. <laughs> I've heard it all my life. Uh, the only thing any of these mean to me, really, is uh, I've heard it. I remember saying it, memorizing it when I was a kid, having no idea what it meant. And it's interesting to have an adult perspective and a historical perspective on these things because it's <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they seem very safe. innocent they can just sort of slide in uh as a child it's very you know they're very innocent little sing-song rhymes that are fun to say and to memorize but everything evolves though i mean i i i didn't really um you know that they're sanitized they're made nicer safer um like the uh, Ring a Ring of Roses. I mean, right. that's a horrific, or got horrific origins. It's about the plague, but isn't it? I, the plague. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it sounds so lovely when you start <laughs> with Ring a Ring of Roses, doesn't it? You want to know where it goes on from there. Right. But also, you know, when you're a kid, you don't always soak everything up. I mean, to be brutally honest, I really, I mean, don't think I had deprived childhood in that way but I don't remember learning any of these really I just knew they sure. existed and passed on but um it, it it's it it's typical of language generally yeah it, it it the stories evolved just as much as the origins for the original mm -hmm. you know, the, the reasons for the original story so um to hear the original reasoning and the original um original store source then um makes you realize just how horrific it all was oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, i suppose because um, it, it exists as part of the oral culture it wasn't it wasn't about being written down it was just one one generation of children telling it to the next generation exactly of we have one in the u.s that's axe murder lizzie borden lizzie borden that's yeah. right yeah lizzie borden yeah and gave her father 40 wax and when she saw what she had done, she gave her mother 41. Yeah. I mean, that's an unhappy life. I guess I guess we thought that was naughty and fun when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, but that, that's ours, Amy. That's like purely that's American. Our... We can claim that, right? So. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, talking of pretty tunes, here's a pretty tune from Sarah Palmer. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire and your children are gone. All except one and her name is Anne. And she crept under the frying pan. Da 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 So as um, as I was saying earlier on, actually, these these um, pieces that that Sarah Palmer has done are just just absolutely fantastic, um, and they capture this kind of mix which we seem to be sort of um, 
spotting between the innocent and the, the, the sweetly melodic and memorable, and then this sort of, you know, dark core, you know, the, 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 the sources of the, of, uh, of the tales. Um, so I think, I think there's definitely something um, going on with, with this connection between Andy Partridge's songwriting and the appeal that um, kind of nursery rhymes would have had for him. And, you know, then they're useful to a songwriter or an aspiring songwriter in a way because, you know, the, the, the rhythm is there and they've also got this, you know, like the Scissorman thing and the Lizzie Borden thing that, that was mentioned. Um, a kind of... Uh, there's a moral dimension to them as well, a sort of corrective um, dimension. And um, Ladybird, yeah, um, it's a song which I really, really like. And for several years, actually, I've been using uh, in my teaching um, alongside um, poems by Thomas Hardy, actually, um, in in class. And um, when, Mark, when you and I first met, we were discussing this sort of thing, weren't we? And... Um, I ended up writing a piece for the the first book, the the, the bumper book, the red one, um, which was about um, just connections between sort of Thomas Hardy and um, Andy Partridge's work, but focusing specifically on uh, Ladybird. So I did a bit of digging into the the, the history of it, and um, I actually think that it was published in the same volume as Barbar Black Sheep in, in 1744. That's the oldest sort of extant version uh, that there is of um, Ladybird, Ladybird. But interestingly enough, um, the version that we've just heard there is exactly the same lyric as is in the 1744 anthology. I think it was called um, Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook which sounds like one of those cassettes that, that Andy used to do before he started doing the fuzzy warbles things. Um, <laughs> it had been a good title for one of those. Um, and so so the lyric has, has kind of stayed the same, and I think one of the reasons it stayed the same and why it's so interesting and possibly why it sort of caught Andy's ear and eye is that it, it's it's got that kind of ambiguity already built in, Um you know, something's terrible. Something terrible has happened. You know, the ladybird is away from the home and has to get back because this terrible thing has happened and all the children are gone. So it's got that horrific thing uh, when you actually think about it. Um, but it's also got this sort of uh, imaginative conceit of, you know, being able to talk to the ladybird to be able to relate to it, to to you know, give it give it some news, bad as it is. Um, and the the melody, as we heard there, is is uh, is kind of so haunting. Now, um, Andy's Ladybird, which which is on Mama, um, I think uh, has a very strong connection actually to it. And um, I don't, I wouldn't say it was conscious that it was a sort of a conscious borrowing, but it was um, it was definitely sort of dipping his his nib into the same well of ink and drawing something out of it. Um, and earlier on, we were talking about how early XTC was just... It was all about action, wasn't it? It was about activity. It was bam, 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 bam. And this is very sort of reflective, almost meditative. He's really still, isn't he? And he's just... 
he's watching this little creature just go about its business, um, walking across his pillow, and he's just sort of imagining what it must be like to be that creature. Um, and I think the, the kind of the musical dimension um, is, is sort of sympathetic to that as well. Um, I think he described it as, um, your mother should know meets Dave Brubeck, which I thought is quite a good, <laughs> uh, quite a good description of it. Um, but that also, you know, the, the kind of the meditation on what it must be like to be this creature um, and the use of the creature, the little insect as a rhetorical device. It reminded me of uh, another poem, actually, um, by a uh, much older poem by uh, John Donne um, called The Flea. Um, and that, that sort of poetic conceit of um, uh, looking at a creature and then sort of extrapolating ideas from it and around it and sort of imagining, you know, the inner life of this creature. Um, I, I, I found it really, really interesting, and I think it's one of his most successful lyrics, actually, um, for that reason. Not just because, you know, of the things we're talking about, but I think it's very complete. Um, and, it's you know, he, he obviously is interested in insects, isn't he? If you actually look across the catalogue, there are lots of them. There's, like, across this ant heap and, and bugged, and Dolores buggier, and... Um, if you've seen Play at Home, you'll know he designed that game, didn't he, called Ant Hill. Um, so, obviously, the, you know, the, the, the creatures themselves are of interest to him. Um, so, yeah, I think that's there's all sorts of reasons there why I think, you know, the, the image of the ladybird uh, appealed to him. And just to pick on, on a little comment you made that you thought that Andy's observation might be a, a reference to the, the, the original nursery rhyme might be accidental. He does. There is a line in it that says you must run to tend your, your children, children, which yeah, seems to be yeah. quite di- a direct a direct allusion to the absolutely to the nursery rhyme. But but um, no, absolutely right. But that can come subsequently. You know, the lyric would necessarily all come at once. So, you know, he might have worked that in as part of the kind of the refinement process. Who knows? It doesn't really matter, does it? It's just a fantastic song, brilliantly performed. It um, really is. Yeah, sometimes that's how it happens. You notice stuff that you don't even know that you're doing, and then you go back to it and you say, well, I'll just put a a little something in there to sort of register the connection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's one of your favourite songs, Amy, isn't it? It is one of my favorite songs, and it's very interesting listening to you, Peter, because your your take on it is wonderful, and it's completely uncoupled from mine. <laughs> and I think that's because, I do think it's because I was unaware of um, the nursery rhyme that it was based on, or was parts of it were based on. And so I just think it's very interesting when you don't have that preset narrative going in, um, you, you, it, all of us bring our own lens of experience uh, to however we interpret anything. And I had touched on this in the last uh, Church of Women podcast, but I, I felt like there was this very kind of flirtatious thing going on between Andy and this ladybird who I uh, learned was a ladybug. I thought it was a ladybird. <laughs> And I saw her as this very anthropomorphized, you know, she has a little hat with a little feather and, you know, she's, uh, you know, wearing a bustle and she's just uh, going about her business and he's enchanted with her. So 
I mean, clearly I've projected my own uh, imagery and <laughs> and meaning. Uh, but the wonderful thing about Andy's work is it's just lovely just any old which way. It's just so solid yeah. and and yeah, absolutely. Just, just perfection. There are no there are no wrong answers. <laughs> And, and, you know, everybody does that, don't they? They, they, You bring your own experience and your own reading uh, to the way you understand the track. And a bit like we were saying with the the kind of the the secret life of these nursery rhymes, you can take them for what they are and enjoy them that way, but you can also sort of do this, this, this research and spot these connections, you know, and think, well, you know, at, at what stage were these sort of... You know what? Almost like a little sort of uh, a little circuit. You know, you connect up all these points, and then the lights come on. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to see the video to Amy's version, though. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> and, and again, and again, I mean, Lady Bird, Lady Bird. It's it's a uh, like like Belinda said. You don't ever remember being taught it, but somehow <laughs> it's just gone into yeah. you to, to, with our. You know, mother's milk sort of thing. We know, we just know that yeah. that song. Yeah. There's, there's. A, I'm just remembering. There's a series of children's books for, for early readers, sort of thing called Ladybird Books, sure. and that 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 is presumably making the same allusion to the same. Yes, yeah, absolutely, same it is. And those have been, those will have been on the shelf in his house. I'm absolutely sure when he was a kid, mm. because they were in everybody's house. Yes. And actually, there it's Peter and Jane. It's we've we've gone through Jack and Jill and yeah. John and and whatever. There was Peter and Jane. They were Peter and Jane. That's right. <laughs> what do you call that noise? Sorry to have to curtail the conversation at this point. It was going so well. We'll be back with more in a couple of episodes' time when you'll be able to hear Belinda talking about English roundabouts. I love roundabouts. Me talking about Newtown animals. The Penhill estate was built on farmland to house the overspill from from London. And the estate was still being built when Andy's family moved there. And Peter talking about bungalows. For a long time, and possibly even still, they're associated with the coast or retirement to the coast or... As I suppose we could say, downsizing or something like that. You can read Belinda on the subject of Dear God in the XDC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is also where you'll find Peter on the subject of Ladybirds. Peter also writes about the songs of Colin Moulding in What Do You Call That Noise? an XDC Discovery Book. You can get both of these books from xdclimelight.com. A massive thank you to Sarah Palmer and Lottie Fisher for providing the musical illustrations in this episode episode. You can catch up with Sarah's band Fascine at fascine.com and you can enjoy Lottie's artwork at uh, instagram.com forward slash Lottie Fisher and you spell Lottie L-O-T-T-E Fisher as in my name. Thanks also to Donna Reese for her drinks recommendations and of course a huge thanks to Peter, Belinda, Amy and Sandy for this fantastic episode and more to come as well and lots of good vibes are due to the podcast supporters on patreon including the following nights in shining karma terry arnott dan barrow matt bell kevin burt liam duggan jamie dunn helen fay leslie gooch robert graham jesper cumberg robert lawlaw dennis lecourier liz lynch yusef mura amy parkinson murray meekle kevin murray Karen Neal, James Newell, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatehome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, 
Nigel Waller and William Wilkstrom. If you'd like to support the XDC podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. I've been Mark Fisher. See you next time. What do you call that noise? Head to xdclimelight.com where you can buy my two XTC books. First, there's the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is an anthology of Limelight, the XTC fanzine I made from 1982 to 1992. We had a couple of lifelines to the world, and, and Limelight was one of them. So the book is the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls. It's stunning. Thank you, Ian Lee. And then there's What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, where you'll find more from the band, plus commentary from musicians including Anton Barbo. For me, it's just simply a life-changing song. And McHugh. It's like a painting by Van Gogh. Jason Faulkner. XTC probably made the most impact on me of, of any band that I can think of. Chris Butler. If there's anything more... Classic XTC, e, 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 e. this is it. And Rick Buckler. It was well produced as well. It had, it had the support of a great producer. I mean, it really sounded strong. Order your copies of both books at xtclimelight.com. It's a paper and ink net, the internet with, with added staples.